Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. I'm Esther Natalitas, I'm the Executive Director of NAVA and I am on the lands of the Boonwurrung and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation here in Narrum, also called Melbourne. It's a very grey day today, which of course makes it the perfect weather for getting together with everyone and talking about a whole range of things. This is the final of our 18 weeks together through the NAVA Advocacy Program. We have had such extraordinary time together finding ways to skill up in advocacy, talking about the key issues in the arts at the moment, looking at how policy is made, looking at media engagement and that aspect of advocacy, and then, of course, that political engagement and heading into that National Day of Advocacy Focus, Arts Day on the Hill, which was last Wednesday, the 12th of August. So today, let's look back on this year, this bizarre, disrupted pandemic year. First of all, I hope everyone is happy and safe and comfortable where you are and that everyone is healthy. We're going to look back on on, on those sessions. We're going to talk about Arts Day on the Hill last week and we're going to hear from Nadia Odlin, who has just said hi to everyone from Gadigal Land. We are also going to hear from Shah Sawani. You can hear from artists who took part in Arts Day on the Hill. We're also going to be joined by Nicholas Picard, who presented a few weeks ago. Nicholas is the Director of Public Affairs at APRA AMCOS and is the former policy advisor to state and federal labour governments, uh, including federally at the time of the writing of the National Cultural Policy. So he will be back to offer you know, a bit of that political reflection as well on the advocacy year and on Arts Day on the Hill in general. I'm going to invite Nadia to join. Hello, Nadia. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Uh, I am good. Tell me, how was how was that coming with you? It was really fascinating. Um, I think particularly I enjoyed the meetings in with the MPs. Not that uh, we really said very much as the artist advocates, apart from introducing ourselves. Um, but it was it felt interesting to be at the table and to be present for that, even like as just a um, you know a real face of art industry sitting there. You know, rather than um, any of the conversations being had seeming to be directed towards like very abstract, like who are these people sort of things. So I felt like that's the value of being in on that meeting. But then the personal value for me was also just watching and um, seeing how the politicians framed things or tried to guide the conversation and also watching you, Esther, and seeing how you guided the conversation in various ways as well. <laughs> well, okay. Tell us more specifically then about both of those, the, the, the politicians first. Tell us about which, which meetings you went to and, and what were they like? How was it maybe different to what you expected or maybe exactly what you expected? Um, so I was in a meeting with Trent Zimmerman and the Shadow Minister for the Arts, Labor. Trent Burke. 
Tony seemed to be very uh, passionate and strong advocate for the arts and for creating arts policy. Um, of course, being not in government at the moment is, you know, I kept keeping in my mind that it's easier for him to say those sorts of things, not being someone who's then you get to turn around and be like, well, where is it? <laughs> but that was, you know, it was great. The way he spoke about it made me think, oh, well, you'd get my vote. But then when we came to be then talking to Trent Zimmerman, who, of course, is actually in government at the moment, what I was fascinated to watch uh, with you, Esther, in particular, was that I felt that your approach really changed from when you were talking to Tony to when you were talking to Trent. I mean, it became much more focused on specific things and, you know, not letting it, the conversation be, I guess, too general or, or washy. Um, in fact, you know, there were points where you were quite specifically being to him, actually, I had a meeting with so-and-so and we delivered a four-page document with statistics and recommendations and I can forward that on to you after this conversation. Yeah. I guess for me it felt like the, the when you were talking with a shadow minister, there was a lot of relationship building that was going on and making sure that they you both knew each other were and um, they knew your priorities and that, you know, that they were articulating what they could do for you. So it's sort of like a relationship building thing. And that was the way I was perceiving it. And then when talking to someone who was in government, it was it felt like it was much more about action and also looking at really sort of achievable um, and actionable asks because they actually do have power to do things. Yeah, precisely. I mean, with, you know, when we meet people in opposition, yeah, it's, it's fantastic uh, to hear them exactly as Tony Burke did to really outline with some passion, you know, what they believe in. And we want them to sustain that passion. We want them to mm. talk to other people about it. We want them to develop policy so that, uh, you know, when it comes to election time, they actually going to make those part of the platform. And because um, I think he, I think he, if he said this in that conversation or in something else recently, the whole kind of, well, you know, we didn't win the election and if we had, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I know that Labor, uh, you know, were very disappointed, obviously, uh, because of that whole poll situation and, and, you know, having almost expected to win and having put so many different policies together. So from our point of view, we don't want any party to think, oh, well, we lost because of having all these great policies. We actually want them to sustain the great, you know, what's good about the policies mm. um, and also maintain that momentum because, you know, it's great to be in a parliament, but it's probably, you know, probably less fun to be in opposition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, we want them to get, you know, to, to stay motivated, engaged. And then, yeah, absolutely, when a member of government says, oh, look, that's really interesting, to be able to straight away say, oh, and I can provide you with some evidence so that you follow up this conversation, you've got the stuff to hand. And, of course, Trent and I have emailed about that and I have sent that information. Mm. You know, it's so important, as we've been saying in our preparation, that meetings have a purpose. You know, we're meeting with you today for this reason and this is the kind of outcome, yeah, that we like. Now, tell us also about Trent because that really impressed me was the preparation that Trent yeah. had done. So it was, it was actually really nice. And, um, you know, I was quite surprised and delighted by the fact that he had gone away and done a little bit of research on each of the artists that he knew he'd be in a meeting with. He, was, he said, uh, oh, and I've seen from your website that you make really big sculptures. How have you been managing that during COVID time? And I was like, oh, well. Thank you. <laughs> and so that was um, 
yeah, I was impressed by that. Uh, and even just from something that would be good for me to remember anytime that I'm in a meeting with someone, uh, him doing that put me on his side very quickly. <laughs> you know, and it very much was a very good um, tactic of, you know, just of respect and um, relationship forming with someone that you're in a meeting with. So having the little things that you can throw out that you know about them and show that you've taken interest is really good. That is a very good observation in terms of a political tactic, which Rob McCready has rightly identified as the old charm and disarm. <laughs> when you're in a brief meeting with someone uh, and you never met them before, and also, you know, you might know that artists have a reputation for being, you know, direct, radical. Maybe they're going to, you know, put you in a position of having to, you know, think differently about uh, your preconceptions and, you know, challenge you to perhaps mm. get into a place that you weren't necessarily going be comfortable to do yeah one of the most important you know ways to extend respect or to charm and disarm is to reflect back um, that you have actually taken the time to find something out and to and to be able to raise that in a context something that never ceases to amaze me about politicians and I swear they all go to like politician school this is their like amazing ability to remember everyone's name around mm -hmm. the table I don't know how many times I'm going to a meeting with, you know, a Lord Mayor, a Premier, and, you know, there'll, there'll be a handful of us or there'll be 15 of us. Like, obviously, they've been given some notes, but they know who everyone is and use the name constantly. And Nadia, when someone says Nadia, um, you know, Nadia, <laughs> I, I really appreciated, Nadia, what you had to say about that. It does put us in a different mindset. And then, of course, your day started out um, with some media as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, I did a little interview on uh, FBI radio. So I'd, um, I'd done the little the media advocacy training uh, with you guys leading up to that, which was fantastic and uh, was just really left me feeling quite um, empowered. I got the interview by, I'm friends with Anna May Kirk, who's a producer for arts and culture on FBI radio and just reached out to her. And I'd been, last time we'd had coffee, I'd been telling her about the NAVA advocacy courses anyway um, and asked her if I thought that there'd be any uh, room for FBI to do any coverage on it and sort of pitched it to them, focusing on the, you know, the advocacy training and uh, how great that's been as part of sort of skilling up the sector thought that would appeal to the sort of demographic that listens to FBI as well. Excellent. And I am a big fan of FBI. As many of you know, I was part of the broadcast trial that secured its, its full-time license more than 20 years ago. Uh, and um, yeah, have been deeply committed to community broadcasting for a very, very long time. I just think it is, yeah, so enormously, enormously important. Now, Shah Sawani has just joined as well. Hello. Hello. Hi, Esther. Hi, Nadia. And Shah was also at several of the meetings on the day. So tell us, Shah, what it was like um, from your point of view. I think for me, uh, um, it's always um, good to to be able to find a, a platform and to to exercise my um, my ideas and my, my my thoughts. It was definitely a, a good experience an empowering experience to be able to talk face to face to the legislature that make decisions for us, but uh, we are not in the picture and they don't even know the condition 
uh, of artists, what they go through. Yeah, it was, uh, I would definitely do it again and again. And here in my council, I also, now and then I engage with the councillors and talk to them about uh, the importance of art, particularly in this time. There's no way to uh, express, there's, everyone is like uh, forced hiding, in, you know, so it's very important in terms of both spiritually and also politically, because as we're hiding, government is kind of sneaking policies, legislations that we don't know. So it's good to, to have that direct face-to-face, -face, uh, you know, have access to the politicians in some ways to, to tell them what we are going through and what should be done. Yeah, that is um, a very important point that you just made, which is, yes, while we are in hiding, while we are in our homes, especially those of us in Victoria who are, you know, very much in our homes, there are all sorts of things that the government is taking advantage of and sneaking through. We've talked a bit over this period about and, and there's been some things recently as well. So about education about obviously workplace relations and the privileging and the deprioritizing of certain workers, whether they're casual, whether people are on working visas because they're here from overseas, then also, of course, so on, on education fees, but also the exclusion of universities from any kinds of support, the exclusion of local government uh, from any kind of support through the whole pandemic, the uh, what we've seen the last few days and late last week, these announcements about copyright reforms and the really just the, the kowtowing to the people who think it's just a little bit too difficult to have to pay artists licensing royalties and, and, and so on for their work. And, you know, who knows what else is being rushed through. And Shah, I really appreciated something you just said. You also said at the meetings, which was about that balance between the spiritual and the political, that art is something that we do, you know, for that, you know, that that really deep, it is a very personal uh, issue, but then it's also a mode of expression that is political. I would love to hear from you both about the spiritual and the political aspects of your work. But Shah, while we're talking, how, um, in terms of your own practice, how do you balance those two aspects, especially right now at this difficult time? For me, the process of, even when I'm making political work, uh, the process of engaging um, like with the ideas, uh, with my concepts, that itself uh, is uh, in some ways uh, spiritually um, satisfying because I, uh, uh, it's not just the, the, the works that I make, it's just not about the politics. It, it, I, I engage with material, I engage with forms, and then uh, uh, there are moments that I, you know, uh, that I that find it really soothing that I have through art, I have managed to entertain myself. Like, because when you, when you, when you make artwork, there is not just one side of like, okay, I'm making this artwork and then the result is this. But within the process, you, um, there are thoughts that goes in, in your mind that you sometimes find funny, um, you know, like the issue, and then you look at the the politics of it, and then you just sit and laugh. <laughs> what what is going on here? So, and then then through material investigation, like uh, I, it's really it, it it brings every time I 
make an artwork. It brings new discoveries and that makes me really, really, really happy. That's the part that I enjoy the most. I mean, if you look at my work, my work there is lots of beauty in it, but it is uh, the past 20 years are my presence in Australia within the political discourse and my status has made me to, to force my politics at the front of it. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's no enjoyment or there's no beauty or there's no um, exploration of um, beauty within my work, but it's, I, I, so far I have chosen to put politics in, in to kind of steer it in a way that I could, how do I say, like counter the political rhetoric that is uh, forced upon us as a refugee or, or, or towards us. So I'd like to counter that rhetoric and kind of release my tension. Shah, thank you. The way that you've just described that, that really deep, uh, you know, w- what it means personally, the, the challenge and I guess the burden of creating art in any circumstance, let alone extremely uh, difficult ones, and ones where we feel that the, you know, the overriding political context isn't a favourable one. That is something that takes great personal strength. And it also takes great personal strength to create those ways that mean that you are exploring what's difficult, what's painful, you know, f- finding that way through those sensitivities. I think it's... Um, it is, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary undertaking and it's, yeah, it's really good to describe it to us in this way because it puts everything that we're talking about, you know, we're talking about it in such abstract terms in different ways all year. Yeah, it, it puts that in, in, in great perspective. And I have to say, I particularly appreciated the way that politicians responded to you and your questions last week. And as you say, having to kind of yeah, think differently about, okay, well, yes, there's a particular person who has had these experiences. I've been thinking in a generic politician way. Well, actually, this is why artists create work. This is why you, as an artist, create work and why you're compelled to. I was listening to Richard's uh, video the other day, looking at the novel he's produced, where he said... Oh, with that, Richard uh, Bell, yes. Yeah, Richard Bell, where he said that art must be very powerful that whenever um, the right-wing politician... Politics, the first thing that they cut is the arts budget because I guess they want to stupefy, stupefy the nation, like make them stupid so that whatever they could um, do, they just can do it. So whatever they want to do, they do it so that um, there's no one to question them. And I think I can speak from experience that, yeah, if I had gone and become a, someone to work in the farm or um, I work in a factory, not that I'm saying that those works are bad, but because I have chosen to become an artist, um, well, at the beginning it was a romantic kind of, that I want to make art and beautiful work and sell them or become rich. But then when, as Richard said, similarly to Richard, as I understood that I can do more, not that I want to change the world, but maybe in small bits, but to change myself or to change in some ways, not to change myself, I can have the strength to to kind of stand up to the bully of the powerful through my yep. work, and that uh, that strength comes through the art. Otherwise, if I was a factory worker, what what could I think? Maybe a strike? No, then I would be kicked off of the job. But here, I can I can say anything I like. I can 
you know, as long as it doesn't offend offend the man. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't change, it doesn't create change at that moment, but I can, in some ways, I'm recording the moment so that for the future generation or for my community, um, yeah. Thank you again very much. I'm going to say bye to you both in just a sec uh, because I can see Nicholas Picard has joined us. Nicholas, welcome. Hi. Where are you joining us from today? My house in the northern beaches of Sydney. Now, I don't know how much of, um, I'd, I'd explained to everyone earlier that Nicholas was joining us after another meeting, and so I don't know how much of um, Shah and Nadia's conversation you just heard, but I was so struck by the way that Nadia talked about our experiences with politicians and the particular, you know, tactical moves that they take during a meeting, but also Shah speaking as um, an artist who arrived in Australia as a refugee who has taken that spiritual and political balance of his work as, as being terribly personally important and as a way as an artist in a sense to stand up and certainly to stand up against bullying uh, and that feeling of being bullied by government. We have spent, you know, the year looking at different tactics and so on for that. How do you see, I guess, some of the impacts of our meetings and, and online activity next week? Um, what's been some of the outcomes of Art Stanley Hill for you? Look, I think anything that increases that uh, dialogue and engagement with politicians is going to be, you know, central to any of the uh, activity that occurs. It's never a wasted opportunity when an artist gets in front of uh, a member of parliament, especially when that artist, you know, is speaking to their local member because, you know, they need to know and they, they need to know the extraordinary depth of talent across the country in all sorts of areas and regions and understand what that impact is to their local area because at the end of the day, they're going to be very locally orientated with what they want to achieve as a local MP. So I think that is going to be... Um, I think that is one of the great outcomes from a government relations perspective. So, I mean, having worked in the music space at the moment, music artists talking directly to, to, to government is the most effective way of getting their voice heard in a, a policy sense. So that, that's, that's, for me, the number one top line. Excellent, because we're about to have joining us now Anna Glynn, who did organise a meeting with her local MP. And can I just say thank you and how fantastic, because something that we really stressed all year and that Nicholas and others told us is that it's all well and good to meet at Parliament House, but to meet locally and have those conversations locally is just so, so important. And Nicholas, we mentioned earlier that to our great you know, surprise and delight, there were MPs, including Trent Zimmerman, the member for North Sydney, this is called North Sydney, isn't it? He's elected. It is, yeah, North yeah. Had done his research on individual artists and had questions to ask, which was which was quite fantastic. But Anna, welcome. Where are you today? Um, in my studio in the Shoalhaven. Um, it's very nice here. Not raining. That's great, Anna. That's really fantastic. Tell us what you did on Ask Down the Hill. Well, I contacted Fiona Phillips in June to sort of, uh, I, I think I treated it a bit like courting, you know, the old-fashioned way of being polite and, you know, reaching out. And Because I didn't want to be 
too pushy or forceful. I, I didn't see that there was going to be any way to move forward if I came on like that. So um, we eventually got an, an, an invitation to Fiona to come up to my studio and visit and Anne Stafford, who I didn't know very well, but now through this, we've become great friends. So excellent. We worked as a team and Anne wrote letters to the um, state and local politicians. And I, I worked to get Fiona Phillips, our local member up here. So we, we worked hard for a few days. Fiona, it was it was almost a bit more like a social visit, but I think that I, I didn't really want to go beyond that at the beginning. I think that this is just like the start of a conversation with Fiona and now I feel quite comfortable to contact her office and to raise points that I think she might want to consider supporting or not supporting. She's very friendly, um, very personable. And I also, because we've had so many disasters where we are, you know, the bushfires, the floods, the, you know, COVID is just another one of a list of things that we've had here. So um, I think we were very lucky to get her and I, I didn't want to be too pushy. I think that sounds like a very wise approach. Nicholas, how, how important is it to, to make that first meeting social? That's the key, really. You know, it's the start of a relationship. It's not the ending, you know, and, and oftentimes dealing with um, speaking to a lot of music industry stakeholders and, and various um, arts groups, often they think, oh, I've got a meeting with, with so-and-so and it's going to be the last time I ever meet with them again. There's a little bit of a sort of a, it's sort of a strange time constraint that they layer onto the, the pressure of the meeting, which is already quite stressful, really. You just, it, this is just the start of a conversation. And I think that from what you've just said, you'll be able to go to back to Fiona whenever issues arise that affect you and your practice and your profession. And eventually, hopefully, Fiona, being an ALP Member of Parliament, will be in government. So then you'll have that person who, you know, is potentially, you know, um, a backbencher in government or potentially a minister. So, I mean, it's all laying the sea. The other thing to always remember is that you'll have duty senators as well. So you can now take this to another level. So each state has their senators and you'll have government senators that will represent the Shoalhaven. So that's the next level to engage uh, on, on a government thing. But this is the best first step. I think it was good too because um, some of the material that Nava had shared, Esther had shared, the, um, the Australia Council stats for Gilmore, I was then able to follow up with a thank you email to Fiona because I'd, I'd mentioned that. So I was able to assist her. I did notice that when I talked about some of the art things like being a moving, you know, doing moving image and she didn't understand what I was talking about. So I've been thinking I'd, I'd like to see if she's available for just a, a general catch up with what's happening in the arts chat. So she has a comprehension of the terminology that artists use. Absolutely. And introducing her to other people and other types of artists who are yeah. working in different mediums with, that you know that are living in the area as well. In fact, that's a really good point, um, Anna, is that um, you can now be in a position to be that conduit. So if you have you've had that meeting, and as you say, it is like a courting, so maybe yeah. now you're dating and, you know, you want to meet each other's friends and, like, let me introduce you to some artists. Um, you know, here's the Australia Council electorate profiles. Here's some stats on the numbers of artists. Now, like, let's actually make that real. These are people in your electorate who are voting for, you know, someone. 
and, and and then really kind of building the relationship. And I also want to pick up on something that you just said, Anna, about the language that we use. Because, yeah, we can, you know, we talked about this a little bit during this year, but those like Mish Grigor, who's on the, on, on the call today, others who were involved last year, remember that through the day we had this sort of evolution in the way that artists spoke about their practice. You know, at, at the beginning of the day, we realised that using a certain kind of language makes sense among us in the arts community, but can be off-putting for people in the general public, for politicians, not because it's technical or, you know, uh, you know that it's, it's focused on specific, uh, you know, kind of arts or industry matters, but because it can be intimidating. People can think, oh, well, I'm going to use the wrong words and this artist is going to think I'm an idiot or I'm not going to be able to explain it properly. And so it's so important that we also think about what are the different ways to explain our practice? And um, Mish, who's here with us, I just love the way that uh, Mish and Nadia and Shah were saying, well, you know, these are, these are some of the things that are important to me in my practice. You know, I make work about this. I, I do make that crazy feminist work. I like to experiment. I like to push boundaries. And Nicholas, what kinds of advice do you give to artists? And we've talked about this a bit in our, you know, preparing and being a media spokesperson and so on. But what sorts of advice do you give to artists when it comes to, yeah, having that conversation when you want to talk about your practice but you don't want to, you know, put someone off, particularly an MP? Yeah, I look, I, I completely get what that challenge might be because, you know, we all lead, you know, live in our, uh, you know, relative bubbles and we have our, you know, communities and we have our culture and our, our ways of talking with one another. And we, we develop that shorthand and then suddenly you, you, you get these, get that meeting between an artist and a, and a member of parliament and that can jar, that can jar. I think the best approach is really to start from the beginning. The best approach is to simplify and not assume any knowledge whatsoever. And then you might be suddenly pleasantly surprised and they'll be able to say, oh, well, actually, I went to such and such exhibition or such and such show, or I saw this, you know, public art or, you know, things like that. So I think you'll start to find that common ground. Or alternatively, you'll find the gap and often they're big gap. And that's the sort of stuff that you can start thinking about with follow-ups over the years uh, as ways to sort of fill those gaps. So I think, uh, you know, starting at the beginning, but I think it's also really important. And recently I was involved, the chair of APRA AMCOS, which is the organisation that I work for, the music um, organisation, recently just gave a speech to the National Press Club. And, you know, I think it's really important in, in talking to government that you don't lose your identity and as speaking as an artist. So it is a, it is a bit of a balance but you can't let that get in the way of, of, of a conversation. I think just starting at the beginning is the easiest. I, I also invited Fiona to um, open my exhibition when it returns from its tour later ah. in December, and she's agreed to do that. And the Jervis Fantastic. Bay Marriott Museum haven't had any federal polys involved in exhibition launches, so I think that's going to be a nice sort of meeting of different performers in the field here. So. Oh, good work. Good work. And, I, and now I'm seeing from uh, from the chat there that you've already got Caroline Phillips uh, is volunteering to join you in that meeting. And Stafford says that the South Coast is embracing the development of artists through the strategic plan from a dairy community inclusivity. Anna is already an amazing artist in that area <laughs> and widely acknowledged by all of us for her works. It was super fantastic to see you know, the images that shared, uh, to see that you had, you know, taken 
the time to, to, to do that. But also, exactly as you said at the outset of describing this, that it is a relationship that, you know, it can, you know, it's that social extension. Again, you know, you bring someone into your circle. Uh, when you think about how the arts, you know, the arts in the broadest way, structures our social lives. What happens in the foyers of theatres? What happens at an opening? There are so many ways that we've become accustomed to that this year, of course, has disrupted in some deeply profound ways. But these, it's not just the language that we take for granted. It's not just the talking to each other and being in the sector that we take for granted. But, you know, we, we do tend to take for granted the, those uh, platforms of our socialising with one another. If we can invite MPs all over Australia to be part of that, to have those incidental encounters at an opening, you know, in the floor of a theatre, at a live music event, if we're extending that, that social world, then it doesn't just open up those opportunities for casual encounter and, 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 you know, making them part of our conversation, but it also extends our culture. You know, people are saying on the chat uh, when, we, when Shah was talking about, you know, that, that oppressive sense of, uh, of, of policy at the moment and Wendy Garden uh, from AAASZ points out this is why they're increasing humanities degrees by 130%. They don't want thinkers. Sandra Tobias says yes, no to critical and, and creative thinkers. We've talked about this notion of the quiet Australians. One of the big problems that we have is the division, the divisiveness that we're seeing across Australian uh, and, and across the world, but, but, but across, you know, Australian culture at the moment. Some of the best ways for us to bridge that before imagining that we're going to ideologically change a politician, some of the fundamental ways are for us to bridge our social means and involve them in the everydayness of, of what we do. So, Anna, enormous thanks. Bye to you now. I think Leia's going to press the buttons and, and say bye. And I'm going to keep Nicholas for just a sec to talk about some broader next steps and so on for us now, because this program, and in about 15 minutes, I'll, I'll look back on each one of those and, 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 and you know, really rethink speakers and so on. But, Nicholas, the aim of the advocacy program leading into Arts Day on the Hill, and of course Arts Day on the Hill itself, was to connect and skill up a whole bunch of advocates, um, as we say in our handbook, not just once off and not just in an emergency, not just around the particular day that is Arts Day on the Hill, but it's really important to be able to secure that critical mass, but, be, but to be able to do that in an, in an ongoing way. Uh, hopefully in an ongoing way that helps to preclude the kinds of funding emergencies that we've seen in the past, but also a way that means that those political relationships remain meaningful. Given the conversations we've been having all year, you know, in this group, and, and for those who are here now, what's your best advice for next steps, um, drawing on, on what we've done and what we have so far, but also looking at what's on the policy horizon at the moment, including a couple of the little surprises in the last week. It's now August and we had the election last May, uh, which means that we're sliding into about the halfway point of this term of government. So I think it's always uh, good to know where you're at in the political cycle. So federally, they've really got only sort of 18 to 20 months left of this term, which is not actually a very long time. So you already need to start thinking about 
we actually need to start thinking about as a sector what it is that we want to prioritise in the lead up to the next election and what are the things that we want uh, both government and opposition to be talking about as far as priorities for our sector. So I think in many ways COVID has been an extraordinary economic, social and cultural leveller in many ways and I think it gives an enormous opportunity to reset a lot of conversations. I think that the appreciation for art, music, literature, film has increased quite substantially. You know, I think there was a great appreciation that our sector was one of the first hit and and, and it's going to be one of the hardest to, to get back up online. The threat now is that we lose a lot of cultural infrastructure, not the big public cultural infrastructure. I'm talking about the feeding ground, you know, the small galleries, the small live music venues, the small theatres, you know, and I think this is something that is going to be escalating quite a lot. Cultural policy at the moment is pretty, you know, fly by the seat of your pants. Normally we can do a lot more planning. So that's why it's important to think about the long term out. What does post-COVID and is there such a thing as post-COVID? What does the cultural landscape, the patchwork look like and how do we build it better? I think certainly from from my side of the, the sector, you know, we often refer to ourselves as the originators of the gig economy mm. and we can see what happens to gig workers when things like this occur. So what is it that we reimagine as far as uh, how artists and creators are remunerated for their work? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really astute to point out, uh, particularly that moment in the political cycle, because um, the, some of the issues that we discuss, we want to see long-term change and we want to see it sustained. And sometimes problems can seem, you know, problems and policy priorities can seem so far away in terms of their achievement that you think well, it's going to take years and years to build that up. But in terms of the political pragmatics of a situation, the election cycle means a great deal. And while in the bureaucracy they're working, you know, in a particular slow and steady way, the political cycle means that there is a leapfrogging, there's a piggybacking, um, there are opportunities. Something that a lot of colleagues and I have been reflecting on the last little while is that while on the one hand, when we look at the policy and funding outcomes for this year, it just in terms of COVID response, it's it's hardly been adequate. Uh, it's hardly been successful in terms of, you know, the way government understands what's needed and, and, and what they've invested. But equally dismally, we're not alone in that. You know, when you look at education, we look at, you know, a whole range of other areas, um, there is a, you know, a, a bit of a pattern of ignoring or undermining a range of sectors, unfortunately. But on the plus side, as you just pointed out, the broader public and media impact that we've had. We've had arts and culture mentioned, you know, in pieces, in media pieces by economists. We've had um, political and economic journalists put questions to a range of politicians, including the Prime Minister, and not in conversations that are about the arts, but that are about all the issues more broadly. And we seem to be in a position where come that next election campaign, issues about artists' practice, the sector and the industry we can very much expect those to be election issues. We can very much expect to see that momentum maintained. So then for us as individuals in, in, in this group, what are some of the practical things that we can do as individuals to make sure that that momentum is maintained and that the relationships are maintained that lead to that? I, I, just, I was just, while you were talking, I was, I was 
reflecting on that rather difficult situation that artists always have in, you know, it's all very well to welcome MPs and ministers or whatever into, yeah. you know, foyers and, and into the fold and to have that close quarter of conversation. But at the end of the day, artists are always going to create stuff that is going to be controversial, that is going to divide, that is going to. So this is something that I think we're yet to really properly work out as far as an important policy priority is concerned. Um, I think at the moment we're still in a recovery stage. You know, we're sort of in the post-Brandis, post-ecological yeah. climate, COVID, you know, so we're in a recovery stage. But people are starting to look at the, you know, at the next stage of what that rebuild uh, looks like. That's why, you know, it's important to sort of step back lift your head up and, and look at the horizon and try and imagine what it is that, that that is next. That's why, you know, things like Arts Down the Hill are so important because they're the beginning of conversations. And it was kind of what we were talking about before. It's the beginning of conversations. It's never the end. It's the start of what you want to try and create out of that engagement. Yeah, absolutely. Nicholas, Thank you. It's been really fantastic to have you present those few weeks ago, but also to have your insights now. There's obviously, there's a lot of great work for us all in the sector to be doing together. But I know I speak for everyone in, uh, in, in saying thank you for your work um, and the expertise that you have contributed uh, to this entire program. So thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.